0: Welcome to Mindful Lawyering, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association's Mindfulness and Well-Being in Law Committee. In this episode, committee member Amy Latore speaks with Professor Jordana Confino of Fordham Law School. Jordana shares the wisdom of positive lawyering that she teaches to Fordham Law students, underlining the power and practices of self-compassion and a growth mindset. Stay tuned for a meditation with Stacey Schaefer, who is the secretary of the Mindfulness and Well-Being in Law Committee and is an intuitive coach, healer, and medium. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Amy Latore.
1: Welcome to Episode 3 of Mindful Lawyering. My name is Amy Latore, and joining me today is Jordana Confino. Jordana is the Assistant Dean of Professionalism and an adjunct professor of law at Fordham Law School, where she oversees the school's wellness, professionalism, and mentorship offerings. Jordana teaches courses on positive lawyering and peer mentorship and leadership. Just last year, she was voted Fordham Law Adjunct Professor of the Year. Through her company, JC Coaching and Consulting, Jordana also supports lawyers through individual coaching and partners with organizations to advance the well-being of the legal profession by building positive institutional cultures in which lawyers and law students feel valued, stimulated, and supported. Welcome, Jordana.
2: Thank you, Amy. I am so thrilled to be here.
1: We are thrilled to have you. So excited about this conversation. Jordana, will you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey and how you found your way to your current role?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, people sometimes assume that I became a positive lawyering professor and a coach because well being comes naturally to me. But that actually couldn't be farther from the case. In reality, balance and self-care have never been my strong suits. And I am what my massage therapist likes to call a type A plus perfectionist. Um, And so when I was in law school and first starting out in practice, I completely believed that the road to success involved throwing myself 150% into my work to the exclusion of everything else really, and that things like breaks and socializing and self-care would only throw me off course. But I ultimately learned the hard way that I could not have been any more wrong about all of those things. And it took finding myself burnt out and painfully lonely and riddled with a whole bunch of physical health issues for me to finally have my, if not now, when moments. And it was actually a Google search, and I kid you not, on how to be happy that led me to my first course on positive psychology. And that program completely revolutionized my relationship with myself, as well as my definition of success and how I think about well being. And it was the transformational experience that i had in that program that it just completely blew my mind and inspired me to do something to help bring those insights and strategies to other lawyers and law students before they hit their own points of burnout so that they can actually build careers in the law that are not just successful but also satisfying and really sustainable
1: i'm sure that your story of feeling getting to the point of feeling burnt out, it resonates with many of our listeners, myself included. And I'm really curious to learn more about your positive lawyering class. Can you tell us more about the curriculum and what kind of topics it includes? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So positive lawyering is basically positive psychology for lawyers. So positive psychology specifically tailored to address the unique needs, challenges and circumstances of law school, and the legal profession. And I'll just provide a bit of context on positive psychology for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with it. It is the scientific study of human flourishing. And what makes that distinctive is that whereas psychology has traditionally operated around a disease model, so focused specifically on diagnosing and treating mental illness, positive psychology focuses on the factors that promote optimal human functioning or what, what they call flourishing. And so, whereas traditional psychology would focus on bringing people from negative 10 to zero or neutral, positive psychology is interested in identifying the factors that allow people to go from zero to positive 10 or truly thriving and experiencing the maximum possible fulfillment. And in addition to providing a ton of research backed evidence about the elements of well being, so what's necessary in order to experience this peak fulfillment, positive psychology also encompasses incredibly powerful research about the relationship between our personal and mental well-being and tons of other hugely important outcomes, including our physical health, but also our productivity, our creativity, and our performance and success in virtually every area of life, including in the workplace and this is why it's so relevant as part of legal education, like legal practice training. And also, it's why it's really counterintuitive because, for a lot of people, like myself included, and certainly lawyers and law students, we tend to assume that our happiness will be the byproduct of our success. So, our happiness, our well being will be something that we'll earn once we've worked hard enough and achieved this quote unquote thing called success rather than the other way around. And what positive psychology shows is that equation is actually backwards. It's well-being that will drive our success, not the opposite. So in positive lawyering, we explore all of the science behind this. And there's tons of science, which is helpful because lawyers are skeptical by nature. And we dive into a number of the foundational pillars of well-being And then work on learning strategies that people can use to deliberately cultivate them. And so that includes everything from our relationships to meaning and values, alignment, mindfulness, of course, optimism and resilience, growth mindset, all of these types of things, but really of all of the topics and all of them are fabulous and so powerful in their own ways. But I I always tell my students if I had to pick one, and I'm so glad I don't have to pick one, but if I did have to pick one, I'd say that the one that I really see the most dramatic impact on my students would be our class on self-compassion, which is why I'm so excited to be here talking about this topic today.
1: That's amazing. I love it. Human flourishing. I would love to be a student in your class. (laughs) Can you start with just the basics. How would you define self-compassion? How does it differ from self-esteem, self-criticism? You give us just a basic introduction if we were the students in your class on the day you teach the self-compassion
2: class. Yes, absolutely. So self-compassion refers to the practice of responding to yourself and viewing yourself in a kind, supportive and non-judgmental manner when you experience setbacks, disappointments, or hardships. So it's the opposite of self-criticism. So rather than judging or criticizing or berating yourself when you have setbacks or disappointments, you respond with exactly as it says, compassion, kindness, warmth, and support. And this is a topic that has been mostly studied and explored by Dr. Kristin Neff, who is basically the guru of self-compassion. And she has broken it down and identified three fundamental elements that really make up self-compassion. And so the first element, which is very appropriate, given the sponsor of this podcast, is mindfulness. And in this context, that means simply noting your emotions and validating them without either trying to suppress them or over-identifying with them. And this mindfulness is really a critical first step to self-compassion because what it enables us to do is recognize when we're suffering in the first place and then choose to respond with kindness, even if that self-critic voice chimes into our head instinctively, we can still make the decision to see that voice, acknowledge that voice, and choose to adopt a compassionate response. Um, But instead, if we ignore our pain or allow ourselves to just get completely subsumed and lost in it, we're not able to step outside of ourselves in that way and take that wiser, more objective stance on ourselves and whatever situation we're facing. So mindfulness is critical first element. The second element is common humanity. And this is recognizing that literally every human makes mistakes. Absolutely no one is perfect. And pain and failure are truly inevitable aspects of the shared human experience. And while this may sound obvious, It's really amazing how easily we forget this and fall into the trap of believing that everyone else has it all together and there must be something uniquely wrong with us whenever we err or struggle. And then finally, the final element and really critical element as well is self-kindness. And this involves being compassionate and understanding towards ourselves in instances of suffering or perceived inadequacy. And what this means is allowing ourselves to acknowledge our pain rather than piling on top of it or judging ourselves and stopping and saying, yeah, this is really painful. This is really hard right now. What can I do what can I do to care for myself? What can I do to support myself and really treating yourself as you would a dear friend if they were in your shoes and you were supporting them in in that circumstance.
1: Absolutely wonderful. So when you teach this lesson, this is not your typical law school class, it must be like a breath of fresh air. So how do your students receive this lesson and why do you find that this is, so powerful for both law students and for attorneys?
2: Yeah, so first of all, I will say positive learning is definitely not a typical law school class. Something that shows up in my reviews every year is, this class is nothing like I've ever done in law school and more important than anything I've ever done in law school. Very so valuable. Those, exactly, those two things always go together. But the students, I love this because the students come into, our class on self-compassion, and that's what it's called in the syllabus, self-compassion, they come in super skeptical. So things like relationships, values, strengths, they come in being like, yeah, tell me more, Jordan. And they're like, how can I use this to help me? And they come in for self-compassion. They're like, really? They're rolling their eyes at me. They're like, I don't want to hear about this. And I totally get this because that was me initially. It took me a really long time to be willing to give, to give self-compassion a shot. And I tell them, listen, like, I'm going to make my case and I'm going to tell you why you should try this and how you can try it. And then you'll try it. You can see for yourselves. And if it, if you don't notice the benefits, if I don't convince you and you don't see the results on your own, then you can reject it. But hear me out. And the good news is that you don't have to think that this is going to help initially to try it for it to work. And I'm living proof of that. But the reason that they come in so skeptical and so really reluctant to dig into this topic is because they believe so strongly that their self-criticism which like we said earlier is basically the exact opposite of self-compassion is driving them forward that it is part of the secret sauce of their success and actually Chris, Kristen neff recognizes this and she in her research she has set about to identify and then refute through science the key myths about self-compassion and i think one of the most pervasive ones certainly the one that's most deep deeply rooted and serves as the biggest deterrent for people like lawyers and law students is the myth that self-compassion will undermine our motivation to improve and that it'll make us weak and lazy and complacent. And again, this just cannot be as intuitive as that seems. And it does. I know it's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. And even though many of us are completely convinced that and have been really raised on the belief that self-flagellation and self-discipline is the only way to motivate ourselves, it turns out, and there's so much science backing this up in every single field, that our inner critics are actually not effective motivators because they only undermine our self-confidence and heighten our fear of failure. And this is because if we, are constantly just beating ourselves up whenever we make a mistake or have a setback what we are implicitly teaching ourselves is that it's not safe to try again it's not safe to do anything that might challenge us because that would create the risk of making a mistake for which we would then punish and berate ourselves and The byproduct of this is that we will avoid risks and challenges and ultimately stop trying altogether or not try with the same type of motivation than if we had responded differently on the other hand the research shows that self-compassionate people they have just as high standards for themselves they just don't beat themselves up when they fail which means that they're less scared of failure and more willing to try again when they don't succeed and this is really important because Whatever anyone might think about, if they just work hard enough, they can be perfect. We all make mistakes inevitably. And the only way to grow is to learn from those mistakes and to try again and to push ourselves further. And so self-compassion actually equips us with the resilience, the psychological resilience to be able to do this rather than retreating. And there's so many studies that I could say, but just a few examples of how self-compassion fuels motivation and growth mindset and enhances learning and performance in an academic context, and I share this with my students because that's especially compelling for them, is that in repeated studies, researchers have found that students who respond to themselves with self-compassion after doing poorly on a test will, when they're given the opportunity to take another test, they will study longer than other students And that time and that effort will be related to their enhanced performance and so they're more willing they sustain their motivation to try again rather than throwing in the towel or giving up or being defeated similarly another study by kristen Neff has found that under undergraduate students with higher self-compassion experienced lower levels of anxiety about being critiqued in class which results in greater willingness to participate. They're also less likely to procrastinate on assignments. What all of these studies are pointing to together is that self-compassion helps facilitate learning and and development by freeing us from the debilitating consequences of this harsh self-criticism in the face of failure and supporting a growth mindset, which is our belief that we can improve with effort, which has been shown to be one of the key determinants of of whether we will increase our skills, increase our abilities. It also increases our motivation to honestly confront our weaknesses and take strengths to take steps to strengthen them. So it really is basically the opposite of being complacent and lazy. It is one of the best things that we can do to turbocharge our motivation and equip ourselves for self-improvement. And I've been focusing on academics because that's the context of law students, but the same things have been found in other realms as well. And just a few examples that self-compassion has been linked with higher exercise motivation. So people who treat themselves with compassion, either about their body image in general, or if they don't exercise one day, rather than beating themselves up for it, they treat themselves with compassion, they will be more likely to stick with their exercise regimen going forward. Same exact thing with dieting and Lower likelihood to continue overeating after a setback. Same thing with smoking cessation. All of these things show that self-compassion will actually motivate us to keep going and keep doing the work and keep improving. And then just finally, self-criticism, self-flagellation is so linked with burnout. And so even if you think that your self-criticism is motivating you in the short term, first of all, if you tried self-compassion, it would probably motivate you far more in the short term, but also you're going to reach the point where you just burn out from that self-criticism and then you're just not moving forward at all. When we first spoke about this, you told me that you call it your superpower. I see now why. (laughs) It's so counterintuitive. And I'll just tell you that the way that I was convinced to try it it was my therapist. And I was always someone who had driven myself and gotten really good results for a time through self-criticism. I was, oh God, I tell my students, I won't even tell them how I used to speak to myself in my head because I wouldn't want them to judge me for my capacity to be so cruel to someone, even if it was myself. And it got to the point where I just was so burned out and it was not working anymore. And my therapist, I kept saying self-compassion, self-compassion. And I was like, no, like that won't work. And then at one point she was like, Jordana, if you had a horse that had broken down out of exhaustion and injury, and what you wanted to do was get it up and running again, would you just keep whipping it to try to get it to stand up and go faster if it was broken down? And the was like, no, obviously not. And she's, why are you treating yourself like that? Why would that work on you? And that was like a huh, that's a good enough point that maybe I should try this. Also, I was out of options. What I was doing wasn't working. I had nothing to lose by giving it a try. And even within a week or so of just doing some very manageable little practices, I was noticing such a difference. And this is something that truly has transformed Everything in my life since. So, yeah, it's a superpower. I would vouch for that.
1: It's great. So, it mentioned it feels growth mindset. It actually makes you more motivated, lower anxiety. And not only does it improve your well being, it can actually improve your legal practice, is what you're saying. So, it sounds like self compassion is just really powerful. But I have to ask you, as attorneys, we tend to be self critical by nature, it's effectively our training to look for defects. We are trained to prepare for the worst case scenario. That's how we do a good job. And so given this negative bias that we attorneys often have, is it even possible for us to
2: become more self-compassionate? Yes, I am living proof of that. And thank God for something that we call neuroplasticity. Our brains are malleable and they're shaped by legal practice and legal training, like you said, in ways that might be helpful in certain instances, but actually be very unhelpful, we've come to learn in terms of our mental health and well-being. But the good news is that if our brains can be wired in one way, they can be rewired in another way, in a way that gives us more flexibility to choose which mindset we want to put on, whether we're in our personal lives or in our practice, based on how that will serve us. And so there are practices that you can do to start strengthening the muscles in your brain that are associated with responding to yourself in a more self-compassionate manner. And it takes time and repeated practice because If anyone is anything like me, we have really deeply ingrained self-criticism tendencies. Those are reprogrammable, but it takes time. And every time that you practice thinking a thought or using your brain in a specific way, you are literally strengthening the connections between those neurons and making it easier for your brain to think in that way. And so the way that this works is, at first, when you start practicing self-compassion, it feels completely unnatural and forced, but you keep practicing it. You're strengthening that muscle, and then slowly, you will see it feeling less thought- forced, and you'll eventually, if you keep practicing this, you will start having those self-compassionate thoughts arise automatically, From first as potential viable alternatives to your self-critical ones, and then eventually coming up as your first thoughts as well. And the more, or at the very least, and if you're practicing mindfulness as well, you'll have that pause and that ability to choose. And at that point, you will have built up so much evidence about how well it serves you when you choose the self-compassionate response that you will just be intrinsically motivated to continue on in that manner. So it is absolutely possible. Like I said, I was just so far on the spectrum of self-critical and feeling like this could not possibly work for me. And I truly believe it worked for me. It could work for anyone. Great. Great. Jordana, let's say I'm an
1: attorney listening to this podcast and you've convinced me I want to try the self-compassion thing, but I'm the main breadwinner in my home. I have a million obligations. I have so many clients on my list, I have obligations at home, I have, maybe I have children, maybe I have aging parents to take care of. And now you're telling me I've got to focus on myself and well, focusing on myself feels, well, selfish. I just, I feel very guilty because I have so much on my plate and I feel already spread so thin. How can I stop and maybe not respond to the clients who are calling me to, my kids who need me, and just stop responding to everyone else and take a
2: little time for it's an amazing question. And what I will say is that it is even more, it is even more important for you to do this. In that case, you have so many people to serve, there is no way that you are going to be able to do so, or do so effectively, if you're not taking care of yourself as well, because you can't serve others if you are completely depleted. And so. Actually, self-compassion is the opposite, again, of being selfish. And it's really just so essential. And this is goes for every form of self-care is that we must tend to our own needs if we want to be able to support others. Because otherwise, again, even if it's sustainable for a time, we are inevitably going to burn out or we're going to grow bitter and resentful of all of these people that we're serving and we're just going to lose the ability to support others or lose the drive and the motivation the determination or the energy to do it well and so caring for yourself in this way is actually essential to be able to preserve your ability to serve others and this again basically with everything i'm telling you is backed up by the research so there are studies that show that those who treat themselves with compassion and incorporate self-compassion practices are far better equipped to extend compassion and support to others. So just a few examples, relationship partners high in self-compassion are reported as being significantly more caring by their partners, because by caring for themselves, they increase their capacity to give to others. Similarly, self-compassion is found to reduce burnout among healthcare professionals. I don't see any reason why the same would not be true for lawyers. It's also been correlated with pro-social actions more generally. And so this makes perfect sense, right? So even putting aside this extreme scenario of burnout, very real and a substantial problem, especially in high stress professions like the legal profession, but putting that aside, If you are absorbed in self-judgment, so if you are in your head tearing yourself to shreds for your perceived inadequacies, any mistakes you've made, that leaves you with a very little bandwidth left to think about anything other than your own perceived inadequacies. In fact, like a self-critical mindset is quite self-absorbed if you think about it. It It leaves you with no focus left to give others. But when we're kind and nurturing to ourselves, we then open up our mental capacity, as well as our physical capacity to care for others. And so I would say, and we'll talk a little bit about how you can cultivate self-compassion, it doesn't take a lot of time. I said it takes practice, but the practices themselves can be very, very short and bite-sized, but in doing this, taking a few minutes to do this will make you so much better able to serve everyone else in your life that you want to serve professionally, personally, whatever it is.
1: Do you think imposter syndrome is related to self-compassion?
2: Oh, imposter syndrome is definitely related to self-compassion. Because what is imposter syndrome, right? It's the belief that you are the only one who is masquerading in whatever role or context you're in, and that you're not good enough to be there, and you don't deserve to be there, and you don't measure up. That is self-critical. You are criticizing yourself there. Think about how you would respond to a friend in your shoes you would not be saying those things to them but also the second core element of self-compassion is common humanity which is all humans suffer all humans have insecurities all humans have weaknesses and that itself that shared commonality of the human experience helps you really level set and realize yes i'm having doubts and insecurities that's because i'm human that's not because i am actually like the one who snuck into this profession or my law school or my job without deserving to be here so it's really just such a powerful antidote to that as well as other types of insecurities and anxieties So when we first talked
1: about this topic, I wanted to learn more about self-compassion. And I started reading Kristin Neff's book, Fear Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. And chapter two is called, What's Gender Got to Do With It? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how gender or gender stereotypes might affect an attorney's ability to
2: incorporate self-compassion
1: practices.
2: So this actually, part of this answer relates back to what we were just talking about with selfishness. I think that women or people who identify as female have this expectation and this pressure to always be serving others, to be serving their family, to be serving others. And it could be construed that any act of self-love or self-compassion or caring for themselves is selfish. And that's just simply not true for all of the reasons I told you before. I think on the other end of the spectrum, men or people who identify as male could say, oh, this concept of self-compassion, this is so soft and feminine and I can't adopt that. It'll just make me weak and vulnerable and it's not macho and first of all anyone who's doing something for the sake of being macho that's just a whole other topic for another day but as we talked about before self-compassion is fierce it's motivating and it will make you do better it'll make you better able to take risks and develop yourself and step up to the challenge and that is not soft at all and i'll also just note that there is really different ways of treating yourself with compassion. And so some of it might be speaking to yourself in a soothing, reassuring manner, but it's also taking action to give yourself what you need in any given moment and to protect yourself. And so that could be drawing boundaries, saying no, whatever it is that is serving yourself in that moment. It's such an empowered response. There's nothing soft about it and while i can see that there might be different concerns about it it really they all really bake into the myths surrounding self-compassion which are exactly what i said myths
1: so how do you practice self-compassion and do you have any resources you can share with our listeners so that they can increase their self-compassion
2: yes absolutely and i do ask this because it's super important because i've been talking all about how Yes, you can grow your self-compassion, even if you're currently very self-critical. And so how do you do that? There's different ways. One bucket of ways that you can practice self-compassion is through meditations. And so Kristen Knapp's website is selfcompassion.org, and that's self-compassion.org. And she has tons of excellent guided meditations and also written exercises on her website which are ways that you can cultivate self-compassion. I did a ton of those when I was first getting started. She also has a self-compassion workbook and there's a number of other other workbooks and books out there by other researchers and mindfulness experts as well. So meditations are one way. Also if you just if you like to do your own meditation practices rather than guided meditations, one way that you can incorporate it into your mindfulness meditation or your breath meditation is by incorporating a mantra along the lines of and this is one that i personally use sometimes just repeating to yourself interspersed with your breaths may i know that i am worthy may i accept myself as i am may i know that i am loved may i always feel safe and secure or some other variation of statements that you find soothing, reassuring, that provides you with a sense of warmth and comfort and incorporating those into your mindfulness practice. So that's how you could do that through meditation. There's also exercises that you can do. And these are actually, I found these even more powerful for me than the meditation practices. And you can do these either written or just in your head through internal dialogue with yourself. And one, one really popular type of exercise is the how would you treat a friend letter. So what you do is when you are find yourself ruminating or beating yourself up about some mistake or setback that you've made or some perceived inadequacy on your part, what you do is write a letter to yourself from the perspective of an unconditionally loving imaginary friend, so someone who just supports you and loves you to the utmost, regardless of how you perform or achieve in any given context, and so express in your letter exactly how you imagine they would speak to you in an instance of perceived inadequacy. So what words would they use to respond to you in this situation? And write that letter to yourself from this person. You can also practice self-compassion in real time by challenging your inner self-talk as it comes up. And so again, this is something that you can do either in your head or writing, whatever you find most effective. But I do think that especially when you're first getting started, writing it out can be really powerful so this is something that i did that was transformative for me and so what you do is so the first step is acknowledge when you are being self-critical and this itself will take some time and practice and mindfulness practice because you might find, and I certainly did, that your inner critic is so ingrained that you don't even notice when it's present and piping up at first. The goal for step one is just curiously observe your inner monologue when you're feeling bad about something. So take note of what words your inner critic is using to criticize you and to make you feel small or less than and really drill down Like, are there key phrases that are coming up again? Does that voice remind you of anyone in your past maybe who was critical of you? What does your self-critical look like? Really personify that voice. And the goal here is get to know that critic so that you can see when it, notice when it pops up and begin to empower yourself to step away from it so that you can make the decision to respond with self-compassion. The next step, once you've acknowledged your critic, is to soften its voice. But as with everything in mindfulness, we're gonna do so with compassion rather than self-judgment. So for instance, instead of saying, what is wrong with you, Jordana? Why are you beating yourself up again? You could say, listen, critic, I know you're scared of failing and you just wanna help me succeed. But you are causing me so much pain and anxiety right now, and this is not helping me move forward. So can we please just adopt a kinder approach? And then finally, once you've created that space, the third step is to, and this is critical, replace your inner critic's commentary with a kinder and more caring and more compassionate response. And again, if you're having trouble thinking of what words to use, you might imagine what your compassionate friend would say in your situation or if it's easier what you would say to someone that you deeply love and unconditionally support if they were in your shoes another thing you could do is can imagine yourself at a younger age as a young child and you might find it easier to convey kindness and support to yourself with that image in your mind and so that is the third step so you acknowledge your critic you soften its voice and acknowledge it but say you want to take a more compassionate approach and then actually adopt a more compassionate approach and like i said earlier when you first start doing this reframing exercise it will almost certainly feel super forced and unnatural it's probably going to be hard for you to generate those compassionate thoughts or if you can generate them you're not going to buy into them at all please do not stop there and say oh this doesn't work for me because As I told you earlier, the way that neuroplasticity works is that the more that you do something, every repeated occurrence, it becomes a little bit more natural and a little bit easier and it will become much more ingrained in your um, deeper level of consciousness. And so even just doing that a few times, if you practice this within a few weeks, you will notice those more compassionate thoughts Popping up, and actually, that you're experiencing them as true as well. And as that self compassionate voice grows stronger, and it will, your inner critic's voice will necessarily weaken, ultimately, changing the way that you relate to yourself overall. And the results, the impact that this can have in every area of your life, beyond whatever perceived inadequacy you're focusing on in those moments, will and telling you it will blow your mind.
1: Jordana, thank you so much for this lovely conversation, just full of resources and tips and information about how this will really improve not only your well-being, but your day-to-day practice. I cannot wait to incorporate this into my daily routine, and I really hope that our listeners do so as well.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited that I've inspired you to give it a try. And please let me know how it goes. I love hearing about how people incorporate this into their lives and the impact they, they see. So the same goes for all of our listeners. You can find me on LinkedIn. Let me know how this works for you if you try it. And if you want to find any other information about my work, you can just go to jervanaconfino.com. And truly, Amy, I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to share this with you and talk about it. As I'm sure you can tell a passion of mine for sure.
1: <laughs> We've really enjoyed hearing all about this and we really appreciate you sharing your journey and your wisdom. Thank you. Stacy Schaefer will lead us in a short meditation now.
3: Sitting comfortably in your chair with your spine tall and feet planted on the floor, close your eyes or soften your gaze. To begin, let's ground ourselves because before we extend ourself in compassion, we must align and be deeply moored in the self. To be able to give, we must first be stable. And as we begin, just take a deep breath in and sigh it out. <sighs> Sighing and humming, release tension and stress in the body and relieve the mind. So take another deep breath like that in and just sigh uh, or blow it out. Letting the exhalation be longer than the inhalation without straining. One more time again. In and Good. And on the next inhalation, breathe into the area of your body where your bottom meets the seat. And as you exhale, send roots down into the center of the earth. So as we're breathing in to the root of our own self and breathing out sending and imagining roots going down to the center of the earth anchoring you to the earth one more time breathing in and breathing out those roots to the center of the earth or to a place that you stop and noting that point on the next breath we're going to breathe up energy from the earth to our heart and as we exhale we are going to expand that energy from our heart to the area around our body. So breathing in and breathing up that stabilizing, sustaining earth energy to our heart and breathing out, expanding that energy around us. One more time, breathing in that stabilizing, nurturing earth energy to our heart and breathing out. Sending that energy from our heart around us. Good. On your next breath, breathe right into your heart space. Breathing into your heart, and as you exhale, start to expand and feel the feelings of care, compassion, and appreciation. So breathing right into our heart center. And breathing out care compassion, and appreciation. One more time, breathing into your heart and breathing out the energy of care, compassion, and appreciation. It's okay if it's hard to do, just do the best you can in this moment, simply feeling the feelings of care, compassion, and appreciation. And as we extend them out, to ourselves in our own field, it is natural for our hearts to stir and to want to extend and reach out to others and to share these feelings of care, compassion, and appreciation with others. So from your heart, become aware of someone or something you care about or appreciate. And as you exhale, extend your heart to their heart. It could be a person, an animal, even Mother Earth. And as we breathe in to our hearts, we extend out compassion to another from our hearts. And from this place, from your heart, say to that person, animal, or thing the following, may you be well, may you be happy, may you find peace. Again, may you be well, may you be happy, may you find peace, wonderful. And you can expand this benediction to others, to your community, to the whole wide world saying, may you all be well, may you all be happy, may you all find peace, good. Now let's offer the same words, that same care and compassion to ourselves. May I be well, may I be happy, may I find peace. Again, may I be well, may I be happy, may I find peace. Beautiful. Now let's just breathe for a moment or two without any agenda or effort, allowing compassion to flow from our hearts to whomever or whatever, or wherever it needs to go. Comfortably breathing here, breathing now together. Take another breath like that. And when you feel ready, open your eyes and be as one.
1: Thank you, Stacy. Listeners, we hope that this conversation has helped you gain greater awareness of self-compassion practices and that you can begin to incorporate these tools into your daily routine, not only to improve your own well-being, but ultimately your legal practice as well. Please visit the Mindfulness and Wellbeing in Law Committee page for the latest information on upcoming events. Mindfulness breaks are starting again the second Friday of the month at 1.15. Yoga for Lawyers will be held the last Thursday of the month at 7pm starting again in December. City Bar members are welcome to join our book club, which meets every other month. The next meeting will be on Tuesday, January 17th at 7pm and we are reading The Surrender Experiment by Mickey Singer. We will be hosting our first annual wellness fair at the New York City Bar this spring, so keep your eyes and ears open for more information on that. You can sign up for these events and get additional resources on our committee homepage. I'm Amy Latore, and this is Mindful Lawyering.
0: Thank you for listening to Mindful Lawyering a podcast of the Mindfulness and Wellbeing in Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. For more City Bar podcasts, hit the subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, and visit our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.